As someone now in the second term in office and who on his re-election in 2018 had the distinction of securing the largest number of votes ever in an Irish presidential election, President Michael D. Higgins requires no further introduction. It is therefore my high honour now to hand over to President Michael D. Higgins, Uchtaron the Heron. President Higgins, the floor is yours. I am delighted to be with you all today, even if it has to be in a virtual sense, to address the important topic of how we might pursue the most fruitful relationships between Africa and the European Union, how Europe might release itself from the narrative of the past and be a part of a narrative of hope, be engaging as equals with our planet's neighboring continent of the young. This is indeed a topic on which I, as President of Ireland, have spoken on several occasions, a topic about which I feel passionately. For the quality of the European Union's relationship with the continent of Africa and its people is a subject of such great importance a topic which carries hope in its transformative potential for so many, yes, for Africa, but also all of us as we seek to address the issues of our time, including the dysfunctional balance of economy, society, culture, and most importantly, ecology and the loss of biodiversity. So may I first thank the Institute for International European Affairs for the invitation to address you and compliment the Institute, which has in recent years become such a critical resource for sharing ideas and evidence that are helping to influence policy at European and global levels. We have now the gift of new empirically based research published on Africa. For Europeans, the issue is, do we read it, respond to it, allow it to influence policy and our European Union-Africa relationship and agreements? For example, the subtitle Carlos Lopez and George Cararach gave to their recently published valuable work, Sustainable Change in Africa, is Misperceptions, New Narratives and Development in the 21st Century. I was struck by something most basic when I first read the book. It was how the Mercator projection, I understand still used by Google, has suggested to generations of Europeans that the continent of Africa is about the same size as Greenland. Greenland is in fact 14 times smaller. Mercator's 1569 cartographic definition of the world became one of the most influential and widely circulated world map projections throughout the 19th and 20th centuries, the authors write. The authors go on to point out that indeed the landmass of Africa is the size of India, China, the United States, and most of Europe combined. And that Africa's blue or maritime economy is even bigger than its landmass. Indeed, the Democratic Republic of the Congo is about half the size of the European Union. When it comes to the continent of Africa, we have so many misperceptions, however, to undo. Misperception is perhaps misleading, for indeed the distortion of African realities has a long spectrum that includes early on, for example, the racist language of David Hume in his essay of national character in 1748. 
Two, in the present, the annual reports of certain extraction companies in contemporary times. And of course, if we are to undo misperceptions, we must reconceptualize, redo development theory and practice, international trade, architectures of debt and dependency. It is significant, too, that anthropology is missing as a tool in the contemporary accounts. That great intellectual and moral impulse to understand culture seems to have been consigned with the decline of empire to the shelves of history in libraries. Anthropology is a project that serves so well empire, yet of course it could yield valuable insights if utilized today for a different purpose. Today, Africa is the continent of the young, accounting for 20% of the young people of the world, a continent of over 1.3 billion people in 2018. It constitutes 16% of the world's human population. It is therefore a continent on which the hopes of so much of our shared future rests. It is on this continent we might perhaps see the playing out to fruition of our efforts at achieving the sustainable development goals of the United Nations, of an adequate anticipation and response to climate change. In short, achieving that connection between economy, society, ecology, and culture that we so urgently need and cannot postpone, involving as it does the future of the planet itself as a habitable space. A 21st, for Africans, there is the need for reducing poverty, for security and the basic necessities of life, for delivering healthy living conditions, for universal basic services, including education and healthcare, for peace and reconciliation and an end to conflict, and for an enduring, sustainable future built on prosperity in the widest most fulfilling, inclusive sense. For the achievement of a fruitful dialogue between the European Union and Africa, there are preliminary tasks to be accomplished at European level. One of the most important being abandoning any affected amnesia as to the brutal colonization of previous times. The detritus of imperial subjugations which surface too often stirred by fingers of hands that are carrying the old intent. For while Europeans choose to forget, Africans rightly remember. We must transact that painful memory if we are, as Hannah Arendt might put it, to stop the events of the past, crippling us in the present and obstructing us in the future. I worry that we have not reached the point of critical sophistication that will enable us to do that. For I recall the dismissive response I received myself to a quotation I made in one of my papers some years ago from one of Sankar Muthu's books. I think it was Enlightenment Against Empire. We do really need to be free and courageous in critiquing empire in the same way as we have been willing to set about critiquing the extremes and possible abuses of nationalism past and present. Ireland's relationship with Africa is quite a unique one. 
be it from the work of Roger Casement to contemporary non-governmental organizations and Irish aid. It has, unlike the historical relationship of former empires, been largely one of identifying with the aspirations of Africans for lives of freedom from hunger, access to education, achievement of inclusive rights, including the full rights of women to participation in all aspects of life. These are powerful foundations upon which to press upon the European Union the need to develop a future relationship with the continent of Africa which will be one of African agency in a transformed Africa. Ireland brings to the African table its own experience, not only of an economic, social, political domination, but also the experience of a suppressed culture, forced exile, and frankly, of racism, as Hume again put it in the specific case of the Irish. They having missed out on the civilization that he thought a Roman occupation might have brought them, were thus left uncivilized, but above all else, lesser. Ireland welcomes the centrality of African agency in the new work of the transformation of Africa, and sees it as having an immensely valuable contribution, having a global consequence as we redefine economics and its connection to ecology and culture. Ireland has from missionaries to aid and development workers, a special connection among African nations resulting from its contribution to education. And we can as a result be looked on as a source of leadership in other areas, such as addressing those unfair and imbalanced terms of trade, but currently prevail which, for example, confine Africa's benefit from its coffee trade to a paltry 10%, and the appalling trade conditions imposed on coffee products, for example, produced in Africa that limit any gains in the value of finished products, locking African products to the lower end of the value chain. Not only as President of Ireland, but through a lifetime in Parliament, I've often stressed that Ireland needs to continue to deepen its diplomacy with the continent. That will, after all, be the birthplace of over two billion people by 2050, a continent of such population that quite scandalously continues to be underrepresented on the Security Council of the United Nations, free to offer its own version of African needs and possibilities. Ireland's deepening of diplomatic representation in Africa is currently underway, and it is something I've been very glad to hear. It is not only in addressing the underrepresentation of the people of Africa that Ireland can give a lead, however. At the United Nations, Ireland can show leadership in calling for an urgent review and redesign of the architecture of the global financial institutions, an architecture that has for so long now past purpose, an architecture, an architecture that has not succeeded in preventing our planet in ecological terms, being brought to the brink of survival itself, that has failed to eliminate global poverty, that has deepened inequality, that has lost cohesion between and within the populations of North and South, and has left a world where conflict is endemic 
and that conflict is never short of armaments produced in countries, including some the European Union, countries that often speak at peace. Given all of this and what Africa now faces in conditions of pandemic, offers such a, as for example, a suspension of six months interest and debt as proposed by the G7, should be seen for what it is, a grossly inadequate gesture offered from a distance by those not sufficiently engaged with the human dimension of their proposals in a financialized global economy that eschews any notion of a moral compass. Last month, Ireland became the 27th non-regional member of the African Development Bank. This is an important addition to the deepening ties that will inform Ireland's relationship to Africa and its people. The African Development Bank and the African Development Fund, it administers, can play an important role in fostering sustainable and inclusive social and economic growth and prosperity, helping the African continent to achieve its potential in a sustainable way as the continent of promise and opportunity. For Africa is just that, a continent where transformation is already underway. In that, we can be partners. The African Development Bank is currently implementing a 10-year strategy to 2022, focused on two objectives, inclusive growth and green growth for Africa, aiming for prosperity that is more equally shared and meets the needs of present generations without compromising the well-being of future generations. This also involves the taking into consideration of the differing social, economic, and environmental aspects that arise in the sustainable development of countries that have differences that must be recognized. To achieve these objectives, the bank has set five operational priorities, including infrastructure development, regional economic integration, private sector development, governance and accountability, and upscaling skills and technology training, together with three areas of special emphasis, namely fragile states, gender, and agriculture, and food security. A disbursement of $6.6 billion occurred in 2018 to successful projects in these priority areas. There have already been many great achievements resulting from such funding. For example, 100% of new lending from the African Development Bank on energy projects in 2017 was on renewables. That was up from 14% in 2015. And just last week, a new solar farm on the outskirts of Mogadishu should, according to its owners, quadruple power generation for the Somalian capital, whilst also cutting costs. It has provided eight megawatts of clean electricity since March and is predicted to provide 100 by 2022. Technology has also given other benefits, contributing significantly to the enabling of democratic processes in line with the freedoms that characterize democracy today. Today, more Africans can access the internet, use mobile phones, and share information with the world at large. The total sub-Saharan African population with internet access 
has almost tripled from 7% in 2010 to nearly 22% in 2017. Likewise, the number of mobile phone subscriptions in Sub-Saharan Africa has almost doubled to 764 million in the same period. According to Dan Alep, run this analysis, the role of the African Deve Investment Development Bank and the Future of Africa that was published by the Center for Strategic and International Studies in October last year. Our membership, Ireland's membership of the African Development Bank and its trust fund is an investment in Africa's potential and Ireland's partnership with these important regional multilateral institutions will both advance our shared but redefined development priorities. Membership and investment will open, of course, future opportunities for Irish science and technology in the region, as well as support projects that spur food security, sufficiency, poverty reduction, and sustainable economic development at different levels across Africa. Africa, the smart continent of the future with a civilization of sufficiency and inclusion can be an exemplar, I believe, a leader in the better and inclusive use of technology. As our world in all its different circumstances continues to respond to the threat to individuals, families, communities, societies and economies, it is difficult to overstate the toll that the COVID-19 pandemic has taken the lives cut short, the, the space and time for the expression of grief curtailed for those who have lost their loved ones. Lack of access, denial of liberty. Those experiencing severe illness are who are vulnerable. Livelihoods made it livelihoods themselves, so many made insecure or lost for millions of families. Coronavirus being a global problem necessitates a global response. Yet it is, so, it is so plainly evident that societies differ in their capacity to respond, such as those in Africa who are in a profoundly exposed position in terms of resources. For example, the proportion of the population that is reliant on the informal economy that prevails and the consequent limitation that results on the measures that may be utilized in responding to COVID-19. So while the pandemic is a global threat, our global vulnerability differs greatly. These differences test both our global solidarity and the architecture of our multilateralism now so much under threat. COVID-19 is a reality in all countries of Africa. We should therefore remind ourselves that there is now an unprecedented opportunity for Europe to begin its journey towards a new contemporary and future shared ethical relationship and do so not only as good regionalism, but also as an exercise in multilateralism, forging a new approach in its relationship with Africa, this time based on solidarity, one that will include a fundamental re-examination of how unfair trade and existing debt structures are impeding not only the capacity to respond to COVID-19, but also the necessary transformations which a continent is getting underway with an African agency that seeks a new form of partnership with its most proximate neighbor, the European Union.
May I suggest that now is not a time for retreating behind borders in Europe. In the African countries where COVID-19 has arrived in greatest numbers, there are immense problems and inequalities in terms of healthcare provision. The same is true, tragically, of Latin and Central America. Given such inadequacy of equipment and personnel, where it is most needed, there is a real risk that the pandemic could be difficult to contain across Africa and Latin America and could result in mass facilities, mass fatalities, and wider socioeconomic problems, particularly in the possible event of a second wave of the virus. The prospect of a future vaccine does not come guaranteed despite multilateral requests as to whether it is widespread availability will be made possible in for impoverished nations. There is need for a global response as to the freedom and capacity of access of all to a vaccine that will have been after all probably developed with shared global research, both state and private. United Nations Secretary General Guterres has correctly underscored how if COVID-19 is to be countered, richer countries must assist those less resourced or potentially, as he put it, face the nightmare of the disease spreading like wildfire in the global south with millions of deaths and the prospect of the disease re-emerging where it was previously, re previously suppressed. The unresolved issues of hunger are now, in 2020, all exacerbated. According to recent research published by Oxfam, coronavirus could double chronic humber, hunger in Africa. Double chronic hunger. Both the virus and the restrictions imposed to curb its spread are disrupting planting, harvesting, the movement of farm labor, and the scale and distribution of projects across Africa. There are urgent calls for borders to remain open for essential agri-food trade. In this context, it is necessary to recognize how dangerously fragile, often shallow at times, at times contradictory, the practice of multilateralism has become, how some conflicts have been continued even as the United Nations recently called for a ceasefire to enable citizens and their governments to respond to the challenges posed by the coronavirus. In addition, in addition to the threat posed by the COVID-19 pandemic, many African countries, particularly those in the east of the continent, are now in the throes of a second wave of desert locusts, many times worse than the plague that descended a number of months ago. The locusts present an extremely alarming and unprecedented threat to food security and livelihoods, according to the United Nations. A swarm of just half a square kilometer can eat the same amount of food in one day as 35,000 people. Yet we must be cognizant that once the COVID-19 crisis is over, all of the inherited and acquired structural impediments to Africa's sustainable development remain. Perhaps the largest of these impediments remains debt. It is surely one of the greatest global failures, the continuing failure 
to achieve the will of the members of the United Nations so often expressed in relation to making debt and credit flows serve as instrument rather than stranglehold, be it in relation to the Sustainable Development Goals, climate change, migration, or pandemics. Responding adequately to structural global inequalities can, by inter alia recognizing African agency, provide Africa with the prospect of carving out a path to recovery of its deep and diverse cultures, a shared prosperity, an enduring peace, and a hopeful future, not only for all its citizens, but for us all, for the achievement, I repeat, of a sustainable connection between economy, society, and ecology. I use the word agency very deliberately, as I agree with development economist and high representative of the Commission of the African Union, Carlos Lopez, that it is through the creation of African agency that capacity to act autonomously and independently, which has been denied to Africa at so many points during its colonial and post-colonial period that Africans will be enabled to undertake the necessary structural reforms so as to create a brighter, shared future. There are some basics that it is necessary to repeat. The health of the populations of the planet must take precedent over any abstracted version of global debt in a financialized econ global economy. Statistics illustrate, for example, in 2016, Angola spent nearly six times as much serving external debt as it did on public health care. Fifteen countries in sub-Saharan Africa spent more paying creditors abroad than on doctors and clinics at home. This is morally outrageous for us all. Furthermore, sub-Saharan Africa spends less than 5% of its total government expenditure on public health, a consequence in part at least of the debt-ridden nature of its economies. There is now surely an unanswerable case for a global campaign to achieve universal basic services and to eliminate the obstacles to that achievement. And when it comes to trade and the economy, Recent low commodity prices have, of course, led to decreased revenues, with African exports having declined by approximately a third in recent months alone. The Chinese economic slowdown has impacted severely on African exports, given the high dependency of many African countries on the Chinese market. Furthermore, many African countries collect relatively low levels of taxation revenue by international standards, as I have already stated, this is because the estimates indicating that as much as 89% of the people in some states and even regions work in the informal economy, compounding the economic challenges facing the continent. Sub-Saharan Africa remains one of the least industrialized regions in the world, and the modern industry that is currently in place struggles to keep pace with what are usually referenced as international Productivity metrics. If labor productivity has stagnated or declined in many African countries over the past 60 years, only to recover modestly since 2000, 
and gross domestic product has tripled in the same period. Serious wealth and income distribution questions are raised. The 3,000 wealthiest in Africa have the same amount of reserves as the central banks, 400 billion euro. Jobs distribute income. And even if in some parts of our planet industrialization has been irresponsible in ecological and human terms, yet in Africa, there is an, an industrialization, as Lopez and Carrack point out, that can be appropriate for Africa on best use of resources, natural and human. And critical too is the transfer of science and technology on new terms in favor of sustainability throughout our planet. The external shocks I referred to earlier, including China's slowdown and fall in commodity prices, as well as the widespread drought in Eastern Southern Africa, have led some industries to become a drag on their economies, rather than being the engines of growth or available for structural transformation. This is all the more worrying because Africa is still predominantly specialized in relatively low technology industries with a huge dependence on agriculture. And, and findings from some of the better work in the development economics field suggest Africa's long-term development would entail a diversified move away from exporting raw materials and the attendant reliance on high commodity prices. Entry, as it were, into a more complex, advanced, set of activities that yield a higher place in the value chain, higher value goods and services for export, thereby increasing the share of GDP derived from advanced manufacturing and improving competitiveness vis-a-vis -vis other world markets. What, dear friends, then, are the prospects for these developments? Let me quote, if I may, from Carlos Lopez and George Carrarac's book, Structural Change in Africa. This is what they said. Five decades of development planning have not yielded the 7%, which is the minimum required to double average incomes in a decade. Instead, there are a range of highly unequal and vulnerable economies that remain entrenched in poverty. The evolution of industrial policy in Africa mirrors mirrors the, evol the evolution of development planning. These include the import substitution policies that took root after independence. Then planning was enthusiastically driven in the 1960s through to the 1970s. Then came the structural adjustment programs of the 1980s, when planning waned and the stage was rolled back. And then this was followed by poverty reduction strategies, so-called, papers in the 1990s derived from that time when liberalization, deregulation, and privatization were entrenched as methods of economic management. The weaknesses in understanding Africa, as well as its misrepresentation during these periods, has a great deal to do with the deficits in industrial production and the incidences indeed of deindustrialization. And this is ironic since most governments implemented various industrial policy strategies and interventions to promote industrial development. As Lopez and Carrack put it, manufacturing as a share of output and employment decreased or remained low over most of these periods. 
as African countries prepare to take their rightful places in the future global economy. They have a real opportunity to promote economic transformation through the industrialization process by capitalizing on the continent's abundant natural resources, adding value to them while also supporting the development of infant industries. The manufacturing sector in particular has been the engine of economic development for the majority of developed countries. And very few countries have developed their economies without a strong manufacturing base. So much so that the terms industrialized and developed are often used interchangeably when referring to such countries. That is what Lopez and Carrack have said. As with many other global issues, establishing the root causes of Africa's political and economic challenges is fundamental for understanding the dynamics of the African continent which as indeed Lopez and Carrack correctly identified. It requires an understanding of how the issues of geography, economy, and demography have influenced and will continue to influence Africa's development. Returning, if I may, to the ethics of transformation and a meaningful multilateralism, it is critical to recall that between the 1870s and 1900, Africa suffered European imperialist adventurism and aggression, diplomatic pressures, military invasions, and eventual conquest and colonization, suppression of culture. Despite many African societies' brave resistance, foreign domination was successfully imposed. And by the early 20th century, much of Africa except Ethiopia and Liberia had been colonized by European powers. The European imperialist push into Africa was motivated by factors that were not just economic, but also political, social, cultural, and frankly racist. The colonial drive followed the collapse of the, the collapse of the profitability of the slave trade, its abolition and suppression, as well as the expansion of the European Industrial Revolution. So an interplay of economic factors the imperatives of capitalist industrialization, including the demand for assured sources of raw materials, the search for guaranteed markets and profitable investment outlets, as well as political factors, including inter-European power struggles and competition for preeminence, together with social factors, such as rising unemployment in Europe and poverty, all led to this scramble for Africa. The colonization was characterized by frantic attempts by European commercial, military, and political agents to declare and establish a stake in different parts of the continent through inter-imperialist commercial competition. The declaration of exclusive claims to particular territories for trade. The imposition of tariffs against other European traders and claims to sole control of waterways and commercial routes across and out of Africa. The arbitrary national boundaries that followed have been largely responsible as a source for ethnic conflicts on the continent due to the forced separation of ethnic groups across states and the forced assimilation of others within states. Colonialism also replaced the pre-colonial governance structures with Western ones, creating a system of kleptocracy in some nations through the formation of hierarchical ruling structures. 
economic rewards given to African elites created a dominant leading class at the expense of all Africans and the continent's natural resources. Despite the demise of colonialism, some elites have remained and maintained their relationships with former colonialists as part of a shared corruption in so many parts of Africa. Such elites are being continually rewarded for draining their state's natural resources and thereby reinforcing inequality. Colonialism, furthermore, created single crop economies in societies that relied overwhelmingly on agriculture, thus sentencing African economies to the volatile whims of markets and market-based fluctuations and exposure to crop failure. Forced integration of developing states into the international trading arena augmented the already widespread inequality between developed and developing states. But central to colonization was indirect rule and assimilation and a consistent theme propagated by the imperialists was the portrayal of the indigenous Africans as uncivilized and uneducated. This racist notion widely promulgated, legitimized at home, and rationalized more accurately at home, the ill treatment and exploitation of those who were colonized, including their relegation to the status of second-class citizens in their own countries. As to the future then, the basic physical conditions for economic transformation may be challenging, and to different degrees in many but not all African countries. Small but fragmented markets, poor infrastructure, remoteness, sometimes a scarcity of relevant natural resources, they all play their part in the continued poor trade and wider economic performance of many African countries. Yet even when these factors are taken into account, however, there remains a large unexplained residual. It is good, therefore, that a new generation of scholars that includes, such as Professors Lopez and Kararak, are examining these structural features of the African economy that account for its past record and are serving to impose limitations on its future development. I'm not so sure, however, may I mischievously suggest that they have sufficiently departed from the notorious modernization theory with all its linear assumptions, ideological assumptions. Yes, what is most important is their suggestion as to what is possible and that will include an appropriate form of industrialization that can be ecologically well fitted and adjusted to local capacity. For if then, if Europe is sincere about its wish to be a partner in enabling Africa to achieve an inclusive, sustainable and prosperous future, debt cancellation must be an intrinsic element of a new authentic European-led response. It is my strong view that a temporary cancellation of debt interest would not suffice as any effective response. Rather, a much more radical approach is required to effectively relieve Africa's debt burden by restructuring, redefining, and in some cases, foregoing the bulk of outstanding debt. Supporting such an approach would be a fitting demonstration of a genuine European solidarity with our neighbors to the south. And it could help to consign to the category of transacted memory 
transacted painful memory. So much of the horrendous consequences of hundreds of years of colonial and post-colonial hubris, exploitation and abuse. And there is such strong evidence that our current development models are in disarray or producing dysfunctional consequences. So a new model must come from a genuinely inclusive dialogue, enabling Africa to become self-sufficient and to develop sustainably. It will require giving agency to Africans to build a sustainable future for all Africans. Why debt cancellation will help in this regard is by allowing strategic commodities that are held by the state to be used for the purpose of economic advancement for all rather than serving debt repayments. Improving agency also requires alterations to the forms of bureaucratic and governmental systems in place in some African nations so as to achieve inclusivity and accountability. It will also necessitate that there is a willingness on the part of the state to work inclusively with civil society in its engagements with external partners. African agency is not about the freedom to imitate failing paradigms. Neither should African agency be solely seen as emanating from and being exerted solely by government elites. Rather, it can be a byproduct of independent civil society and progressive movements across Africa at individual and societal levels, working with their entrepreneurial versions of the state towards shared goals. Agency also relates importantly to the multilateral level. I've said it already. The ongoing underrepresentation of African nations in international organizations, including the United Nations, surely is a major cause for concern. And we should all be concerned at this underrepresentation. An underrepresentation we continue to witness, an historic, unjust underrepresentation of an Africa which was then still ruled by colonial powers when the United Nations came into existence and the Security Council established. Africans must be allowed to have influence in council decisions affecting their own continent. The increasing effect of climate change on international peace and security gives this proposal even greater urgency. A 21st century African under-enlightenment, dear friends, is underway. And may I suggest it can draw on sources deeper and richer than any limited European 18th century rationalism. For example, it can draw on a diversity of pre-imperialist sources of wisdom as well as the vigor and energy that comes from being the continent of the young on our planet. And to enable such a transformation requires us Europeans to reconceptualize development models in relation to Africa and indeed elsewhere, to emphasize the need to seize the possibilities of transformational change, to be partners, partners with a listening capacity as we offer our help in the efforts to build a sustainable future for the planet. As of what is already underway in Africa, we have examples available to us. We can build on excellent initiatives already receiving assistance from the European Union, such as the Great Green Wall, a project led by the African Union 
which aims to transform the lives of millions of people by creating a mosaic of green and productive landscapes across North Africa, thus combating the effects of desertification. The key structural changes that are required in relation to Africa have been identified, as I have said, by African scholars such as Carlos Lopez, George Carrack, and many others. These include changing politics, respecting Africa's diversity, embracing a deeper understanding of the policy and historical context, not defeated by it or its consequences, move to sustainable industrialization, increasing agricultural productivity and diversity, building a new social contract, adjusting to climate change and inserting agency in the relationship with Africa's key partners, especially China. An effective European input into an African 21st century enlightenment requires an agreed and appropriate definition of what is meant by structural transformation. As Lopez and Carrack have written in the work I've already quoted, Structural Change in Africa, Misconceptions, New Narratives and Development of the 21st Century, it requires an understanding that while Africa seeks transformation, it is not alone, and that any such transformation must be grounded in eco-social sustainable policies. It requires to a proper understanding of the role of new forms of sustainable industrialization in any transformation, as well as other key enablers, such as an innovative development finance. Whatever policy proposals that are made now and in the future must accept that it is past time, that the residues of the imperialist mindset succeeded as it was by the idea of progress, modernization theory, with its ethnocentric linearities, must be issued from informing assumptions in policies, diplomacy, and scholarship. I so agree with the scholars I have quoted that such residues continue to permeate modern-day misconceptions of Africa, often propagated in ignorance by the media, misconceptions, misreadings, that are not only cartographic, as I opened with, but also pervade work on risk perceptions, levels of conflict, problems of political stability, and other spheres of human existence. Such misconceptions far too often portray a continent in continual crisis, despite that continent having made significant progress in recent years. Such accounts usually form the basis of an unhelpful and inauthentic narrative about Africa that portrays a gap between perception and reality regarding its transformative potential. I'm not for an instant discounting the need for institutional change. Of course, an overall commitment to good governance and state well-being is needed in many African states as a prerequisite, and this cannot be used as an excuse for shirping Europe's moral and ethical obligation to progressing and being partners in Africa's overdue economic and wider social transformation. We need now, all of us, to move beyond our prescriptive approach to dealing with African challenges, an approach that often resulted in programs of aid in the past that were externally imposed, conceived and applied without proper understanding of the crucial need for African agency. They were offered, I think, and imposed indeed, without due cognizance of history in the context of Africa as a diverse, fast-changing continent. Perhaps it is even an appropriate time 
to return to using old tools in our task, I've already said it, such as anthropology. I agree with Lopez and Carac that a paradigm shift in African Union, European Union relations is now urgently needed. Our challenge as Europeans must therefore be to forge that new relationship with Africa by arriving at a new place founded on real multilateralism and solidarity so that we can be ethical partners in the necessary structural change that can deliver universal basic services and transformational prosperity in Africa and an enduring sustainable future a sustainable development future for the continent of the young on which those of us who believe in global social justice and solidarity place so much collective hope. Thank you all for listening and participating and I look forward to your questions. Verbanak Sloan.